How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm here in conversation today with John Meacham, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. And we're going to talk today about his new book, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. John, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. So normally you write books, many of which have been great bestsellers. Uh, You won the Pulitzer Prize for your book on Andrew Jackson. But your books are often about people who were not alive when you started writing them. In fact, they often have been gone for 100 or 200 years. So uh, what prompted you to write a book about John Lewis? I was standing on the Pettus Bridge in March of 2020 with uh, my family and about a thousand other people. Uh, It was uh, John's last trip there, and that was fairly evident. Uh, He'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last fall. Uh, I'd known him for about 28 years, I realized, when I actually sat down and and figured it up. Uh, I always thought I would write about him, but I wasn't sure when. Uh, I thought I had another decade or so uh, because I thought he would uh, keep going. And as I was standing there watching him, I realized as he was speaking that this is exactly the antidote to where we are now politically. Uh, He spoke of faith. He spoke of faith both in God and in America, uh, both secular and sacred terms. And I thought this is a story that needs to be told as much as possible not because it's a fairy tale, not because it's uncomplicated, but because it is complicated. So he'd already written an autobiography. And did he say, when you told him about this, did he say, I don't need any more books about me? And and what did he say? Did he say, I'll cooperate? What did he tell you he would do? Uh, He was very generous. Uh, He, I said, because it's a really excellent autobiography, it's called Walking with the Wind, uh, 1998. What I told him was that I wanted to do a kind of theological view of what had brought him to the bridge. That was the fundamental question is, why was he on that bridge on Sunday, March 7th, 1965? There were a lot of other places he could have been, and there were a lot of people who weren't there with him. And, you know, John was one of the great listeners of all time. You know, Howard Baker once said that the art of politics lies to some extent in the art of listening eloquently. And John Lewis did that. But then when he spoke, he spoke with this kind of prophetic voice, as you know, this, this deep voice. And we argued for 28 years, I guess, uh, about a, a very fundamental point, which was that John Lewis believed that if you and I put our hearts and minds in the right place, if we oriented ourselves correctly, we could bring about the kingdom of God on earth. 
that the vision of Isaiah, the vision of Micah, the vision of the Christian New Testament could in fact come into actual tangible reality. I don't believe that. I think that we're too fallen, too frail, too fallible to do it. But John Lewis did believe it. And I wanted to explore what it was in the experience of someone born in a segregated society who faced white-sanctioned, state-sanctioned, totalitarian violence. What made him think that perfection was possible? And that was not an angle of vision that he had spent a lot of time contemplating himself. And so he was uh, very welcoming to that theme being explored. So interestingly, um, you go through his civil rights career, but you really don't go into his congressional career, which was almost three decades. I assume you didn't go into that because you really wanted to focus on the civil rights struggle and his involvement in it. I did. This was really my opinion and my understanding of what religious faith can do in our politics when they are marshaled and managed by people of goodwill. And that was a very particular point I wanted to make. Well, let's go through his life, because some people today may be familiar with him as a member of Congress. As I said, for three decades, he was there. But many people may not really be familiar with exactly what he did during the civil rights uh, struggle. So uh, let's talk about his beginning. Where was he born? And did he come from a prominent family? No, he was born on February 21st, 1940, in Pike County, Alabama, the great-grandson of a slave, uh, grandson and son of sharecroppers. Uh, Pike County is about 50 miles from Montgomery, uh, southwest. Red Clay, uh, Black Belt, Alabama. Uh, Eight or nine children in the family. Uh, He overcame a childhood stutter by preaching to the chickens in his uh, farmyard. His father was, as I say, a farmer, uh, drove a school bus. Uh, his mother had uh, jobs around town. and uh, But it was a classically poor life, economically poor, uh, in a segregated county, in a segregated state. One of the tributaries of his life, actually, was how important the media coverage of the civil rights movement was. He saw the pictures of the lynching of Emmett Till in Money, Mississippi in 1955. He read about Authorine Lucy, who was the woman who attempted to desegregate the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. And so he, and he heard Dr. Martin Luther King on the radio coming from Montgomery. He had an innate revulsion against segregation. That was one tributary. The other tributary was seeing that the world beyond Troy, Alabama, was quickening to the same cause. And those two tributaries merged when he came to Nashville. So he came to Nashville to go to a college, is that right, or seminary, is that correct? Yeah, American Baptist Theological Seminary. It's up on a hill over the Cumberland River, not far from where I'm sitting. And so when he came there, all of a sudden, he got involved in civil rights uh, protests. What propelled him to do that? His parents, were they supporting him to do that or not? No. One of the things about John is his life was quite biblical. Uh, He was not John Lewis when he was growing up, uh, parenthetically. He was Robert Lewis or Bob. And when he came to Nashville, he became John Lewis, which Abraham was renamed, Elijah was renamed, Peter was renamed when you received new work. Uh, 
he had to walk away to some extent from his family of origin to take up that cross and that cause. So he comes to Nashville in the fall of 57 uh, during the Little Rock Nine experience over in Arkansas. He's at American Baptist, which is a black school uh, run by the white Southern Baptist Convention to train black ministers. Uh, very modest uh, in terms and means, two or three buildings up, up on a hill called the Holy Hill. So as in the Bible, he went to a mountaintop to receive this, this new work. Uh, and he encountered Kelly Miller Smith, uh, who was the pastor of the largest black church in Nashville, who had helped bring in a man named James Lawson, who uh, I think Lawson may be the most important living American about whom not enough people know. Uh, Lawson was a Methodist minister. He was a conscientious objector during Korea. He went to jail for refusing to be drafted into the conflict. He went to India. He met with Gandhi's lieutenants. Uh, Gandhi was dead by then. But Lawson saw that the philosophy of nonviolence, the tactics of nonviolence that had done worked so well in India could be applied to the segregated order in the South. And he had come back to the United States. He was at Oberlin and ran into Martin Luther King, who, when King realized that Lawson had both a theological background in the American church and the experience of knowing what Gandhi had done, King said, you're exactly the kind of person we need in the South. And so under the sponsorship of the uh, Fellowship for Reconciliation, uh, which had been founded by Norman Thomas and Jane Addams and others, Lawson comes to Nashville. Kelly Miller Smith recommends John Lewis uh, to go to these Tuesday night workshops in the basement of a little brick Methodist church uh, not far from uh, the college. And in those sessions, John Lewis begins to really absorb the philosophy and the tactics of the nonviolence that he would carry to his grave. So he gets involved in protests that are starting in Nashville and other cities to uh, desegregate, in effect, lunch encounters that were very prominent in uh, those cities. Uh, why did he choose those that, that area to protest? Department stores were enormously important because that's where, in the black communities, where you went and you got your Sunday clothes. Uh, it, it's where you shopped. But you could, you could go in and spend your money, but you couldn't go in and have a hamburger or a Coke. And it was this flashing red light for people about their second class citizenship. Their money was good enough, but they weren't good enough. What happened was uh, Lawson had been training uh, Diane Nash and John Lewis and James Bevel and Bernard Lafayette and others in very careful tactics to desegregate these public facilities. And they were it was a very carefully planned. These were not spontaneous demonstrations. They were very much, they knew to dress well. They knew to go and buy something. So they were paying customers. Uh, they were to say, sir and ma'am. Uh, very, very carefully calibrated. Then, before they were fully ready to launch the all-out effort in Nashville, all these separate movements that had been taking shape in the South more or less rose up simultaneously. And so, uh, and he was, that was his first arrest. And interestingly, again, biblical, he felt, as he put it, free, the freest he'd ever felt when he was put in the paddy wagon. 
in downtown Nashville, which was the way St. Paul felt. Uh, it's the way Silas felt. It's the way the New Testament uh, folks felt when they were imprisoned for the faith. They thought that they were actually fulfilling their mission in life. Those efforts ultimately resulted in the desegregation or integration of those lunch encounters. And John Lewis, though not perfectly so, but there was progress for sure. But ultimately, John Lewis got involved in something else called the Freedom Riders. Uh, what are the Freedom Riders and why was John Lewis very in, in, indispensable to that effort? Well, imagine how important buses were in the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s. People weren't, particularly people with not, uh, not of great means, were not jumping on airplanes. The way folks got around was on buses and trains. And there had been a Supreme Court decision, the Boynton decision, that had ordered the integration of interstate travel facilities, but nobody was paying any attention to it. And so the Freedom Rides took shape in May of 1961. They were going to send integrated groups of protesters on Greyhound and Trailways buses into the segregated South to both integrate the buses themselves and also, as important, the restrooms, the lunch encounters, the facilities that were downtown, the bus stations, which again, 60, 70 years ago, were pretty important cultural landmarks in these different Southern cities. And in May of 61, uh, he, he, it was his first trip to Washington. And he, first time he met Stokely Carmichael, for instance, they get on the buses and head South. And he's beaten in Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, by a Klansman who, interestingly, in 2009, a man named Elwin Wilson, uh, moved by the election of Barack Obama, reaches out to John Lewis to say, I'm the one who beat you in Rock Hill, South Carolina in 1961, and I want to apologize. And they actually became quite friendly. The Freedom Riders ultimately had many different efforts uh, throughout the South, and ultimately uh, there was progress so the position that he has, uh, that he comes to, is the head of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, when did he actually become the head of that? He was the head of that in 1962. Uh, uh, Marion right. Barry had been the first chairman. And as the head of SNCC, he is considered to be one of the civil rights leaders in the United States, although he's much younger than the, the more famous ones. But he's involved in the planning of the March on Washington in August of 63, um, but there's a very interesting part in your book. It talks about how um, he had the most, um, let's say, violent potential speech, uh, the most vehement speech, and it ultimately was edited, and he had to figure out whether he wanted to take the editing or not. Can you go through that and, and his speaking at the, uh, at the uh, Lincoln Memorial? Sure. Julian Bond, his uh, associate, had put the speech out a little early. The uh, Roman Catholic Archbishop of Washington had read it, uh, had realized that he was going to be talking about how we should march through the South like Sherman uh, and burn down segregation. And this was seen as overly militant. And so Lewis was prevailed upon by the five other, they were called the big six, as you allude to, uh, the head of the Urban League, the NAACP, the SCLC, Dr. King and, and others. And uh, Lewis took the edits. Uh, actually, if we didn't know what the first draft had said, I don't think we would find the second draft to be particularly weak on these things. Uh, Malcolm X disagreed. He said that the March on Washington was like a cup of coffee with too much milk in it. 
But it's a pretty powerful speech because he's basically taking aim at two things. One is the Kennedy administration, which had finally proposed a civil rights bill on June 11th, 1963. This is, as you say, August 27th, 28th of 63, for not really going far enough. And secondly, he asks, where is our party? The party of Goldwater is the Republican Party, but the party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland and Thurman and Stennis, these white segregationists who were part of the Democratic coalition at the time. So uh, during that day, uh, he's pushed to make some changes. My favorite detail about the March story is uh, the Kennedy administration had stationed two aides inside the memorial with the power switch to cut the microphone to uh, the podium in case Lewis went uh, off script somehow. And John Riley, a longtime Democrat in Washington, had a LP, an album ready of Mahalia Jackson singing, he's got the whole world in his hands, that they were going to play to blast over the speakers in case they had to shut down John Lewis. So after President Kennedy's assassinated, President Johnson comes in, the 1964 Civil Rights Act is ultimately passed. Uh, why didn't John Lewis say, well, I've got a lot of things done. I'll go back and get my college degree and go get a job and doing something else. Why did he say, no, I got to keep working on this? And he wanted to pursue voting rights. Two things happened in, in 1964 that don't get a lot of attention anymore. One was the treatment of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, at Atlantic City in the Democratic Convention. So Johnson does an incredibly brave thing. Uh, he passes the Civil Rights Bill when he didn't really have to. He could have waited until after the 64 election. It was a 57-day filibuster, as you know. Uh, it was signed the first week of July in uh, 64. But Johnson, an amazing politician, as we know, saw the white backlash coming. And so Having signed the bill, he then wanted to shut down as best he could the, the movement of the South to the Republican Party. And he would slow it, but he couldn't stop it. One of the ways he wanted to slow it was by refusing to seat an integrated delegation. I know this sounds arcane, but it was hugely important to, to John Lewis that had come together in, during Freedom Summer which was the same summer, remember, where the three civil rights workers uh, were killed in Neshoba, in Neshoba County. Uh, it's all unfolding right at the, in the same weeks. And Lewis was determined, uh, as best he could, to help Fannie Lou Hamer and others become the Mississippi delegation at the Democratic Convention. Because the other delegation, which is called the Regulars, was the all-white segregated one. Johnson, when we look at the 1964 results now, we, we think it's crazy, but Johnson believed that the whole South could go for Goldwater. And he was egged on by John Conley of Texas and others. And so we have him on tape. He's also using the FBI, by the way, to bug the civil rights movement with not only broadly, but in Atlantic City. And ultimately, neither delegation is seated. The whites leave. And then Johnson still, even when the whites walked out, would not seat that delegation. And the significance of that, and I will admit that until I was really dealing with, with John on this, I didn't appreciate this. It was the first big break in the civil rights movement 
between the people who thought that the structure, the power structure, could be brought into harmony with the ideals of the movement. Suddenly they saw that they couldn't count on the politicians in Washington. They had come through a couple of years where they had done great education, they had been brave, the Kennedy administration had moved slowly but had gotten there, Johnson had pushed the bill through, but then they realized there was a limit to that progress. And that was one of the moments when Lewis realized the only way we're going to be fully engaged as citizens is if we can vote for these folks and if they are accountable, not simply to white people, but to us. And that's when the push for voting rights really took shape. So John Lewis stays involved and he begins one of three marches across the Pettus Bridge. The first march, he's the leader. And that's on the cover of your book. He's walking as the head person, although he's still very, very young. Uh, what happened when he walked across the bridge? He was walking from where to where? Where was he trying to go when he was stopped by the uh, police? The plan was to start the march from Selma to Montgomery. The idea was to march that 54 miles or so to end up at the Alabama State Capitol, George Wallace's capital where Jefferson Davis had been sworn in as president of the Confederacy in 1861, and to present the demands for voting rights to the governor. So Selma to Montgomery was the march. And they get to the top, and they look down, and they see, as John said, a sea of blue. And it was Alabama state troopers, and also posse men, deputized white supremacists from uh, Jim Clark, uh, the Dallas County Sheriff, who they were determined that they were going to teach these blacks a lesson, teach these agitators a lesson. They get to the foot of the bridge. They ask for a moment to kneel and pray. The major says there'll be no word, there'll be nothing. And then the tear gas comes and the beatings start. After that march, uh, they uh, have another march, which Martin Luther King joins. And then Martin Luther King leads the effort over the bridge. What happens when he gets to the police? Well, he stopped. This is one of the great uh, weeks in American political history. But the week between Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, and Johnson giving the great voting rights speech, We Shall Overcome, eight days later, is also a fascinating slice of American history. Because Johnson wanted two things. He wanted both sides to submit ultimately to his authority. And so he wanted two things. He brought George Wallace up and he did the Johnson treatment, loomed over him, said, George, what are you doing down there? Why do you want people to say when you're gone, George Wallace, he hated instead of George Wallace, he built. And he forced Wallace to say that he would allow a safe march from Selma to Montgomery. At the same time, Johnson is forcing King and others, John Lewis is in the hospital, to submit to Judge Frank Johnson's orders that they would wait for the injunction against the march to be lifted. So J Lyndon Johnson wanted control over the whole situation. And in that week, you go from John Lewis being beaten to Lyndon Johnson standing in the house saying, we shall overcome. But there's ultimately a third march over the bridge, which is the one that's going to be allowed. And on that one, even though John Lewis is physically impaired um, and he has to not 
uh, he has to go back every night, I guess, to get some rest. He does walk the entire way to Montgomery. Is that right? He walks the 54 miles. Uh, he can do about seven or eight miles a day. And then they drive him back. He sleeps and they drive him back again. Uh, it was an incredibly important uh, march to finish. And they do end up at the Capitol. They do end up uh, giving important speeches there. And that was the force that ultimately led in August to the Voting Rights Act. So after the incredible courage that John Lewis has shown throughout this early part of his life, he is voted out as the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and Stokely Carmichael replaces him. Why were people upset with him after all the courageous things that he had done? Nonviolence was out of fashion even when white people thought it was in fashion. Uh, is one of the interesting things about the reaction to John's death that I thought was so fascinating is almost no one addressed this tension. But Dr. King and Lewis and their adherents who wanted to turn the other cheek, who wanted to use nonviolence to make the long and slow struggle for justice, were running into an immense amount of pressure for the, the conversation and the tactics to move from love thy enemy to black power, to a more, and I use this word advisedly, to a, a more proactive, uh, more aggressive uh, way of trying to address the issues of social, political, economic injustice. It's very complicated. And the, the borders between these philosophies are more porous than the popular version has it. So did John Lewis regret that he, um, in his 20s, he's thrown out of the job that he wanted and the rest of his life, while he's, um, I'd say, valued for what he's done and has lots of very important jobs, the greatest things he did in his life were probably in his 20s. Does he regret the fact that he, was, he lost his position? And do you think the rest of his life was as valuable as what he'd done in his 20s? He never really got over losing to Carmichael. Uh, it was at Kingston Springs. It was very difficult. He went into a kind of self-imposed exile for two years. Uh, but then he came back in 68 and was working for Robert Kennedy uh, for that presidential campaign, both when Dr. King was killed and then when Senator Kennedy was killed. No, I, he saw his life as a series of sequential chapters that were about bringing the, the Declaration of Independence into fuller uh, realization and trying to bring about that beloved community. So no, it, it, I don't think he had a hierarchy of uh, of satisfaction about what he'd done. John, it's very interesting book, uh, very interesting conversation. So I want to thank you for letting us know more about uh, John Lewis uh, through your book, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. Thank you for this great conversation. Thanks, Dave. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.